The Bob Murphy Show, episode 138. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show this one we're going to be doing something a little bit deep something that's been on my mind for a while and I thought I might as well just stop and go ahead and, and codify my thoughts. So I want to have some clarifications or caveats before I dive right in. Notice I titled this Why the Left Hates Christianity as opposed to Why Leftists Hate Christianity. And so here I'm trying to distinguish between like the movement institutionally or as a collective, if you will, as opposed to the individual people who compose it. Because I grant there are plenty of people on the left politically, may call themselves progressives, might even call themselves socialists, who might even be Christians, all right? So I'm certainly not trying to say every single person who is on the left hates Christianity. Having said that, I think it would be naive and ludicrous to deny that at least in the U.S. context, that's the one that I can speak about, the left hates Christianity. And I'm not going to spend time defending that if the listener to this podcast episode doesn't agree with me and thinks, no, no, what are you talking about, Murphy? Defend that claim. I don't know what you're talking about. When I flip through television or listen to political arguments, I don't get the sense that the left hates Christianity. What do you mean? Then I don't know what to tell you, that you know, you and I are just on such different wavelengths. I'm not aiming this particular episode at you. So if you have a sense of what I mean when I say the left hates Christianity, what I want to do in this episode is try to explain why that is. Because I think it might go deeper than even you realize if you're somebody who already agrees with me on that claim. So one thing I think we should establish right out of the gate here is that some of the obvious considerations that come to mind really don't work. So in particular, somebody who wants to say, oh yeah, well, the reason the left hates Christianity is because it's a bigoted, patriarchal, white supremacist, exploitative system, you know, that oppresses women and minorities and upholds the public. And the reason I think that's inadequate, even though that might be a reason if you like found a particular leftist advancing something that seems to be hostile to Christianity and you ask the person, hey, why did you say that? That might be the sort of explanation they would give. The reason I don't think that's sufficient or that that's the whole story is that they don't act like that way towards Islam, even though on any objective metric you want, clearly Muslims oppress minorities and women and so forth, especially homosexuals, way more than Christians do in the modern world. And yet you rarely hear complaints along those lines. And so I... I don't think that's really the explanation. I think there's something else going on. So just in terms of uh, secular sort of real politic considerations, I think it's obvious that part of what the explanation is 
is that Christianity, and again, let's put aside for the moment theological or, or metaphysical or supernatural issues and just look at it as a secular phenomenon, that Christianity is an obstacle to the standard leftist agenda that just it's by its its tenets, its teachings, it would be sinful to turn over the education of your children to the state or particularly the moral upbringing of your children. Let me put it that way. And certainly the nuclear family is rooted in Christianity. And I, and I know critics will come along and say, oh no, look at some of these patriarchs had lots of wives and concubines. Okay, but it also says in the beginning, you know, God made them male and female and you know, sort of defines marriage in that way. And that's why Bible-believing Christians who go to the mat for so-called traditional marriage rightfully refer to the Bible and why so many leftists who are against that despise those biblical allusions, okay? So again, this, this stuff is not completely arbitrary or, or just some myth that conservative Christians dreamed up. So a lot of what the left wants to do, Christianity stands in its way. And beyond just the, the particulars of, oh, this is a particular goal of the left, and then Christianity happens to oppose that or to have a recommend a, a moral code or practices that would stand in the way. Besides just going through and itemizing them, let me read, there's a famous quote attributed to Antonio Gramsci that says, socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. And then there's an ellipsis. In the new order, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. Okay, and so he's, this guy Gramsci, uh, he's associated with cultural Marxism. He's the guy that, in his notebooks that he wrote in prison, was the one that's credited with coming up with the strategy saying, hey, look at, the standard proletariat revolution isn't happening the way Marx predicted it would. And so we have to conquer the culture first. We got to take over the schools and the academy, major media and so forth, and rip apart the foundations of the capitalist West that way. We, you know, we, right now an outright direct assault to try to bring in socialism won't work. The masses aren't with us yet. We have to sort of convert them through this backdoor strategy. All right. So, Anyway, that, that's a quote. Um, Let me just mention, I'm tr I was trying to pin down exactly where he wrote that, like the page number. I've seen it quoted all over from places that look pretty reputable, but technically I haven't been able to find the exact reference to that particular quote from Gramsci. But certainly it's consistent with what I know his overall views are. So I believe that's a, a legitimate quote that again, the money line is, socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. I would also say that beyond sort of the, the, you know, these just doctrinal differences that in general, it's, it's not merely that, oh, what the left wants to achieve is antithetical to Christian values, but also to the extent that people are practicing Christians and really believe it, that gives them hope, right? That you're willing to stand up to the state if you believe you're on the side of God, hence God is, God is with you, okay? And, or you're willing even to die for your cause, okay? So to the extent that 
the leftist agenda requires getting millions of people to do things they don't really want to do, and you got to kind of drag them against their will in your mind, you think it's for their own good, then there's nothing really you can do against people who think God doesn't want me doing this and there's a reward for me in the afterlife if I stay true to the cause, if I stay faithful, right? There's, you know, what can you do? I mean, ultimately, to the extent that they're really committed Christians, they're willing to let you feed them to lions, right? So if you're trying to transform society, you don't want people like that around, right? So that's another sense in which Christianity, precisely because it recommends something that's, quote, so irrational, namely be, being willing to die for your right to not get universal health care. Like, what, what, we're just trying to, you, <laughs> you call it socialized medicine. We're just trying to help you and fix health care for everybody. And you're that mad about it? And you're willing to, to go to the stake for that? Come on, right? That seems crazy. And yet, that's what committed Christians would be willing to do in certain circumstances. And so, you can see that type of doctrine that inspires such allegiance and such, quote, foolhardiness is something that, the person who wants to revamp society would, would oppose and realize this thing is an obstacle. We need to deal with this. We need to erode it. Now, moving beyond secular matters or pragmatic considerations, I am, of course, as you folks well know by this point, a Bible-believing Christian. So I think God is real. I think Jesus is real. And that means the devil is real. And it means since I believe these things, that Christianity is correct. Now, let me hasten to add, I doubt any particular sect of Christianity has the full story. I think lots of them each are, are groping around, along with the, the, the truth and you know, have seized on different elements of Jesus' teachings and built up from there and you know, probably... When Jesus comes back, we'll realize, oh, wait a minute, you know, none of us had it completely correct and, and so on. But nonetheless, Christianity, its core essence, I think, is absolutely true. I think there's a devil who opposes it, and therefore it shouldn't be surprising that in the, quote, secular, non-religious aspects of society that don't seem to have anything directly to do with religion or theology, it seems like things that are Christian are constantly under assault. That's exactly how the world would look if Christianity were true. So since I think Christianity is true, it doesn't surprise me that this is the way the world is unfolding before my eyes. Now, that doesn't mean that every leftist is an active league with the devil, right? Just remember the great line from the usual suspects, right? Kevin Spacey's character explaining that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist, right? And so I think that's real. And so when people scoff and they go, oh yeah, but there's some guy with pointy horns and a you know, pitchfork, ha ha, okay, he's on my shoulder telling me stuff, okay. Yeah, <laughs> if the devil, devil were real, that would be great for his cause to have it be funny and, and you know, for most people to not think he exists because that's a good way to convince people to serve his bidding. All right. Um, incidentally, along those lines, I have to mention Thaddeus Russell, when I posted my debate with him that you good folks listen to on the podcast here, episode 133, 
my debate with Thaddeus Russell on postmodernism. So he posted that. And then on Twitter, somebody said, you know, a very uh, serious person said, postmodernism is from Satan and this guy Thaddeus Russell, is, his arguments were satanic or something along those lines. And Thaddeus presumably thought that was funny and retweeted it saying, I can't deny this or I don't deny it, something like that. All right, so I'm not saying that Thad behind closed doors, you know, does all kinds of weird animal sacrifices. I am saying, though, that's kind of creepy that he thinks he's being funny and retweeting that and saying, yep, I can't deny that I'm serving Satan when if Satan is real, I'm saying the postmodern stuff is exactly the kind of thing that he would love. And I'm going to expound on that in a little bit. All right. If Satan is real, he would trick lots of people into working for him, even though they didn't think he existed and they would be horrified to realize what they were doing. All right. I mean, and this is very biblical, by the way, like the, the, the Garden of Eden story that, you know, Adam and Eve are tricked into eating. So it's a subtle thing, by the way. I don't want to go off on a long tangent on this. So they, they did sin. They, they, they knew that they were sinning, but they didn't fully realize what they were doing and they were tricked. Now the, the serpent, um, and some people say, well, we don't know if that's Satan. I, I think it is, but okay. I'm just acknowledging it's, there's some dispute on that. And then of course, Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So what does that mean? Does that mean they thought they were just doing some construction work on some wood and didn't realize they were killing somebody? No. What he means is they don't fully comprehend the magnitude of the sin they're committing here. So they were sinning. They, they knew they were doing something wrong. So they, they can, they're morally accountable for that. But his point was they don't really understand what they're doing. Okay, so that's how sin works. You get seduced, right? That's, that's the language that George Lucas used, right? That, that Vader was seduced by the emperor, seduced by the power of the dark side. Okay, so again, showing, it's, it's not that you're doing something against your will, but when you're seduced, there's a sense in which they, you know, your, your defenses are, are knocked down. Okay, another example here, just to show you this, this connection between the devil and the left. It's, it's so famous, I, I can't not talk about it. Saul Alinsky, in his famous book, Rules for Radicals, people on the right like to say, hey, Saul Alinsky literally dedicated his book to the devil. So just to see exactly uh, how, how much nuance we should use in that, I went to Snopes that said, did Saul Alinsky dedicate Rules for Radicals to Lucifer? And the writer here says, mostly false. Okay, so it's riffing off of a Ben Carson claim. And then it clarifies and says, well, here's, here's the epigraph in question. So this, everybody's acknowledging, is in Rules for Radicals. Even this guy saying, hey, the claim that he dedicated the book to Lucifer is false or is, is, the devil is wrong. So this is from Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. It says, lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical, colon, from all our legends, mythology, and history, and who is to know where mythology leaves off and history begins, or which is which, the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom, dash Lucifer. Okay, so 
this Snopes guy is saying, that's not really a dedication to, he's not really endorsing what Lucifer's. Okay, so be that as it may, Saul Alinsky, when he's writing a guidebook telling radicals how to achieve what they want in this world, says, again, let me read it, lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical. From all our legends, mythology, and history, and who is to know where mythology leaves off and history begins, or which is which, the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. All right, so talking about the devil rebelling against God and then winning the kingdom of this world and earthly power, he's not certainly condemning Lucifer. It's one almost might view that as an endorsement. And in Alinsky's own terms, it's at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement. Okay, so at the very least, Alinsky is showing how, hey, the guidebook I'm writing here, the person who pulled this sort of thing off better than anybody was Lucifer. So I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I Again, for people who want to nitpick and say, wow, I mean, it's kind of over the top to say he dedicated it to the devil. Okay, so let me elaborate a bit on my claim that this the postmodernism, you know, that all that movement or philosophy and the things that are associated with it. And with some of this stuff, folks, too, it's it won't do just to look at the narrow doctrine, the way it's spelled out by the top level theorists, and say, well, that doesn't actually imply XYZ. And so therefore it can't be held responsible. I mean, in other contexts, we wouldn't go for that sort of reasoning, all right? Um, you know, the obvious example being to be able to rule out all the crimes of the Soviet Union and Maoist China and so forth by saying, well, I mean, Karl Marx never actually called for mass murder of the common people. So, I mean, that's not to be laid at the feet. I mean, they, they obviously deviated from standard Marxism or, you know, that that would be goofy, Right. And so likewise, even though some of the things that are associated with postmodernism might not directly flow from its tenets, even so, they in practice do go hand in hand. So for, to give you an example of what I mean, Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault both signed a petition trying to overturn the age of consent laws in France. All right, so to, to make it so that, you know, young, like teenage, young teenage girls, you know, they if they gave consent, you know, that wouldn't be statutory rape and so on. All right, and the argument was along the line, you know, who, who are we to get in the minds of these others and to judge what the proper relationship is? You know, we can't impose that. And so, we, okay, fine. But they didn't also sign a petition to repeal the minimum wage law saying, well, who are we to judge what's an appropriate wage level and, you know, if, if the workers consents to it, then who are we to come in and, you know, impose our standard? No. And also, in general, yes, it is true that postmodernism per se, you would think would be a bulwark against Marxism because Marxism is a meta narrative about the unfolding of history and how things are necessarily going to change over time. Whereas postmodernism is like, hey, how can we know any of that stuff? And it's wrong to have these grand systems. But in practice, just about every postmodernist I know, except for Thad Russell and Nick Gillespie from Reason, are on the left. And we're familiar with, you know, former Marxists or neo-Marxists or what have you. 
Okay, so that's, again, I don't think that's a coincidence. So why might that be? Well, besides other things that you might posit in terms of just, you know, looking at the, the types of policies that people on the left favor and the types of things that postmodernism allows you to do, um, you know, it's, it's, for example, just to give you an idea of what I mean, if you want to battle against economics, like if you want, if you want to be for the minimum wage, if you want to be for price controls, if you, in, in general, if you want to be for high taxation of the rich, if you want to be for inflation, I would think correct economics shows you the problems with those policies. And so how did the Marxists deal with that? They invented the doctrine of polylogism to say, oh, no, no, there's different logics out there. And the bourgeoisie, they have their own logical system. The proletariat have their logical system. And so the teachings of the classical economists, which prima facie seem to be a roadblock for the achievement of Marxism, we can throw those out the window because they're based on faulty logic. They can't help it. They're trapped in their own system. All right. And Mises spent a lot of his time arguing against that doctrine. So likewise, in our times, and you see this unfolding, I mean, in case folks, you don't realize how bad this is, James Lindsay, who was one of the guys involved in the, what they call the, the uh, grievance studies hoax that I, I dealt with on this podcast. He recently, by the way, he has a PhD in math. He recently was in a very long Twitter dispute with various people arguing over whether two plus two equals five, not making this up in case this wasn't on your radar. And these weren't like trolls. These were other people, some of whom had academic credentials who were arguing with him. That, no, no, no. I mean, yes, there's a sense in which two plus two equals four, but you can't be so sure of it because I can come up with axioms and other things. And, duh, 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 duh. and they were tying it to, there's a, a passage in Orwell's 1984, where, um, was it O'Brien is trying to demonstrate how powerful the state has become and to say that, you know, we can break things down and convince you that two plus two equals five, something like that. I, th I think it's, I might be botching that. It might be maybe in somewhere else, someone's just lamenting that fact. But clearly in 1984, there's a passage talking about this dystopian nightmare is such that we can get people to think two plus two equals five. That's how powerful Big Brother has become. And we are there now. We are in 1984. Now, of course, the people who are defending the idea that, hey, there could be context in which two plus two equals five is a correct statement. Don't impose your unitary, you know, preferences over axioms on me, man. They don't think they're justifying a totalitarian state. In fact, they think they're doing the opposite. They think they're maximizing human liberty, just like Thaddeus Russell thinks he's maximizing human freedom by, you know, being agnostic as to whether reality objectively exists or not. And I am saying, not only do I disagree with these folks on these issues, I think what they are doing undercuts the foundation for liberty. And so people who do want to usher in a totalitarian state love postmodernism. Okay, but let me now push things deeper here. Among its either literal implications or things that in practice postmodernists tend to do with it, okay, clearly I think we can defend the following. To say postmodernism is an assault on language to say, you know, words don't mean, you know, there's not some objective meaning that we can all attribute to words that it's subjective and that 
you know, we always need to be open to different interpretations. So the idea of trying to link objective truth to language is a no-no. And in general, the belief in an absolute notion of truth, what they sometimes refer to as truth with a capital T, and the belief in knowledge acquisition through techniques like science is suspect. And certainly people's faith in those processes to guide them towards truth and even more generally to think there is an absolute truth out there waiting to be discovered, perhaps imperfectly by us with our feeble minds, but that standard of absolute truth does exist. That is something that is either explicitly rejected by postmodernism or questioned. Okay. Am I on solid ground with you folks for that? That it like deconstructs language and deconstructs the foundations of truth as embodied in the modern age of Western society with its pillars of reason and logic and science such that even seemingly obvious mathematical truths like two plus two equals four are now on the table as an open question, right? That even your faith in, like, okay, say what you will. Like, you know, I, I don't know about gender. I don't even know if the sky is blue. Okay, you know, who knows what... But I mean, surely we can all agree that two plus two equals four, right? And no, no, we can't. That, that's a very complicated question, sir. And I'm going to take 16 tweets here to tell you why. All right, that's the debate that has been raging on Twitter the last few weeks. I'll try to find a good link, by the way, folks. So this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 138 if you want to uh, look up some of these links. Hey, everyone. Let's just take a break from the discussion for me to mention if you like what you're hearing and you want to hear it more frequently, that I encourage you to support the show. For details, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Okay, so now with that as the context, let me just point some things out. In the Bible, how does the book open? First of all, notice the essence of Christianity is a book. All right, so that's something that, that's interesting, that what modern Bible-believing Christians say is the source of their knowledge or one of the sources of their knowledge about God and reality is a book. You can see how postmodernism undercuts that. But besides that obvious fact or consideration, look inside the book itself. Genesis 1 starts this way, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So what I'm focusing on here is that word said. You know, I never really thought about it before, but as I was preparing to do this episode, it occurred to me that when God creates the material universe, he does it through saying things. He does it through language. It could have just said, and God willed that light existed without quotation marks. And then, you know what I'm saying? Like, you can go play basketball and desire to shoot a free throw. And it's not that in your mind you thought out, I will now take a foul shot, right? So there's things you can do. You can perform action in the Misesian sense without thinking particular things in, in some type of language in your mind let alone without saying them out loud. And yet the way the Bible describes it, 
when God creates the physical material universe, he does it through speaking, all right? So I'm not a theologian. I'm sure people could spend books discussing the implications of that fact, but nonetheless, I'm just pointing it out. And I think that's very relevant here. Of course, don't worry, folks. <laughs> Those of you who are knowledgeable Christians are like, oh, Bob, there's an even more obvious thing. Don't worry, folks. I'm going to do it right now, okay? The beginning of the Gospel of John says, and again, I'm reading from the ESV translation, says, in the beginning was the Word, and the word, word is, has a capital W throughout this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, and then down in verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so here what's going on is Jesus Christ is identified not as the Son of God, not as the Messiah, not as the Prince of Peace. He, he is all those things, by the way. But here, the way the Gospel of John starts, how does it describe Jesus' essence, what he is in the beginning, before the creation of the physical universe? What was Jesus? He was the Word. Okay, now in the Greek, that the, the word, you know, the, the word meaning the little W word that signifies that is logos. So you may have heard that term. Okay, let me just read. So this is the Wikipedia entry on logos, and it's L O G O S with a capital L. So in Christology, the logos, and then it gives the Greek letters for it. And then it says, literally, the translation is word or discourse or reason is a name or title of Jesus Christ derived from the prologue to the Gospel of John. And then it quotes that, okay. As well as in the book of Revelation. So in the book of Revelation, it says, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Okay, so incidentally, this is something that preachers will discuss. If you watch some uh, sermons on this stuff, they'll stress that, you know, it's common to refer to the Bible as the word of God. And that's a little inaccurate. Strictly speaking, the word of God is Jesus himself. So I, you know, I think colloquially we can say, if you're a Bible believing Christian, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And, you know, and what you mean by that, okay, is fine. But strictly speaking, what the Bible teaches is that the word of God is Jesus. Not Jesus speaks the words of God, which that would be un, unsurprising, right? Oh, yeah, Jesus is God, if you believe in the Trinity. And when he speaks, the words coming out of his mouth are from God. So peace. No, 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 no. Jesus is identified as the word of God. Or in Revelation, it says his name is called the word of God. Okay, so, and there's a whole, you know, in that Wikipedia, it gets into the, the doctrinal battles over Christianity and the, the exact nature of Jesus and his relationship to the Father and so on. All that's great stuff out of my pay grade right now. I need to study it more. But my point for our discussion right now is just think about that. Jesus is the word of God. He is the word. 
before the material universe existed, Jesus as the word existed. Everything was made through him. And also it says here, the back to the gospel of John, verse nine, I, I had skipped over this earlier, says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. All right, and then later, which I did read, I'm gonna read it again just because it's beautiful. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so you see here in several places, Jesus is the word and he's true. So can you see how a doctrine or a, a framework that teaches you that language is to be deconstructed and we can't trust any particular interpretation of a text, that words mean different things and they're social constructs and how truth itself is suspect. At the very least, we can never ascertain it. And some are open to the idea that it doesn't even exist out there for us. It's just all different narr rival narratives that should be evaluated merely in terms of their utility. Can you see how that is not merely something that I find false and unhelpful, but is literally anti-Christ, right? If Jesus is the word and he's true, then a doctrine that teaches that language is to be deconstructed and we at best should stop holding truth up as this absolute notion of the standard that we should strive after because it's pointless. You know, that's, you know, a false idol as it were. That's literally anti-Christ. It is anti the things that are the essence of what Jesus is defined as in the Gospel of John, okay? Also, just to elaborate a little bit more on this, so that term logos, you, you saw when I read from the Wikipedia entry, it can also be, stand for reason or logic, right? I think that's in terms of the etymology, logos and logic are close. And also notice all of our scientific fields like biology or even theology, all the things that end in ology, that also is going back to logos, okay? So there's a sense in which that word that is what Jesus is defined as is the foundation, etymologically speaking, of reason, logic, and the sciences or the intellectual disciplines, like if you want to say is theology a science, okay, right? So you can see how postmodernism, insofar as it attacks the foundations of all those things, is quite straightforwardly, I'm not saying it for rhetorical effect, just plainly, prima facie, anti-Christ. Okay, so I think that that's something pretty fundamental that we should, if you're at least a Bible-believing Christian, that you should think about. Now, the last point I want to make in terms of why does the left hate Christianity, it's, uh, it's ironic because it's actually the opposite of what secular critics of Christianity would think. All right? That the people, the secular critics of Christianity who hate like Jerry Falwell and you know, that kind of stuff, Pat Robertson and you know, the focus on the family and all these you know, crazy right-wing Republican, da, 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 what don't they like? They don't like the judgment. They don't like the shame. They don't like the condemnation coming from these corridors. It's like, hey man, don't judge my lifestyle. I want to live like I want to live. Mind your own business, you busybody Christians, right? If you asked them, maybe that's why they would hate Christianity. And maybe they were told when they were younger, they were going to go to hell for their perversions, all right? Maybe they were preverts, the way that the 
guy in Dr. Strangelove says. Okay. So what I want to say though is, and not to dismiss all that stuff. And it breaks my heart that many people who do not believe can be turned off by that kind of public demonstration. But that's not what Christianity is. And by the way, I know <laughs> I just said 10 minutes ago, well, it's not enough just to look at what the doctrine says, look at how its practitioners put it into practice. So I am not trying to ex- minimize or excuse the, the harm that people cause when they misrepresent what Christianity is, okay? But in terms of what is it, Christianity does not teach that someone who's a Christian is better than somebody who's not a Christian, right? You are saved when you know, you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and we can get into predestination and stuff like that. But clearly, it's not through any work of your, your own, right? It's not because you're good enough and you got over the threshold to get into heaven. You know, you must, your sins must not be above this line to gain admission to this ride. That's not Christianity, even though some people think it is, even if they go to church every week and, you know, or even if they technically know, oh, officially that's not what it is, but in the back of their mind, they still kind of think that's what it is. Because it's very human to think that way. It's understandable. All right. Christianity that's not what it is. Let me just say the gospel, put it that way, all right? Because Christianity is a more formal term, but the gospel certainly is not teaching you that, oh, God's very patient and forgiving, but, you know, at some point, you got to shape up or else he's not going to interact with you anyway. That's not what the gospel is, okay? The gospel doesn't say, yeah, fortunately, we caught you before you committed too many sins and now God's willing to have a relationship. You know, that's not what the gospel is right? Even while we were still sinners, God was willing, the word became flesh to live among us, to teach us, to let us butcher him, murder him. And while he's sitting there dying, he looks up and asks the father to forgive us. And this is the way he defeated the power of Satan, right? Satan tricked us into doing the worst possible thing we could have done. He could have been you know, presumably dancing. Ha ha, I did it. What more could I do to cause eternal enmity between man and God than to trick them into murdering his son? (laughs) Victory for Lucifer. Saul, give it up, give it up, Saul. Yeah, right. And nope, because what was the one card left that Jesus played? He forgave them. The father forgives us and raises him from the dead. And thus showing, no, 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 the things, the the tricks, the tools that Satan has at his disposal cannot stop Jesus, cannot stop God from loving us and accepting us, right? That's what Christianity is. So yes, if you're a Christian and you understand the Bible, you shouldn't be going around sinning. You shouldn't be getting hammered every week. You shouldn't be engaging in rampant sex. So that's where that moralizing comes from, right? Not because, hey, I don't like that stuff, because it's bad for you and God doesn't want you to do what's bad for you, okay? So there are standards and things because there are objective reasons for them, all right? So that's where that comes from. But yes, I know exactly why some people don't care to tune into a televangelist on television, okay? But ultimately, the message is not, hey, come be a Christian like me 
because I'm good enough to get into heaven and maybe if you shape up, God will let you in too. That's, that's not what it is, okay? It is rather, I was a sinner. I was lost. I was hopeless, floundering in my life. And then Jesus rescued me. And now that I see the big picture and understand much better, let me try to share that with you so you too can enjoy the kingdom of God right now. You don't have to wait till you die. You can enjoy it right now. And let me just share this with you. Okay, that's what the gospel is. And so what does this have to do with why the left hates Christianity? Coming from the devil, and I've explained what I mean by that claim, the agenda of the left, it's gasoline, it's fuel, is built on people's shame and guilt. I mean, just, just think about it. How, how does environmentalism, there's movements, how does it work? Clearly, the Black Lives Matter movement right now, how does that work? By telling everyone how bad they've been. You've been polluting the earth, you Americans. Look at how much your carbon emissions are compared to people in Pakistan. You need to start right now doing your penance, okay? I'm not even gonna bother spelling it out with the Black Lives Matter movement as to, you know, the connection between sin and guilt and reparations and atonement and so forth, okay? So by absolving people of their guilt on a secular level, that's one way to defang those attacks and to, you know, take the wind out of their sails. So whether you believe in theology or not, or whether your theological views believe in a God and a devil or not, that's just certainly a thing going on, number one, psychologically, if you will, that the people pushing those leftist agendas can't get anywhere if most of the public happens to believe Jesus died for their sins, right? There's just like, you know, you're not going to make me feel horrible about something people did hundreds of years ago. I don't even feel horrible about something I did five years ago. I've been forgiven and I'm trying to leave, you know, live a better life now. So there's that element. But besides that, Christianity, the gospel reconciles God and man. And so if you're the devil, that's the last thing you want. And so ironically, it's not because of, you know, the superficial reason that many leftists themselves might report and say, oh yeah, the reason I can't stand Christians is they're always so judgmental going around condemning me for my sins. It's actually the opposite. The reason I think institutionally the left despises and tries to attack Christianity is because it is, comes from the devil and the devil does not want man and God reconciled. The devil wants you to dwell on your sins. The devil doesn't want you to be forgiven or doesn't want you to know that you're forgiven. And so that's why Christianity is attacked, not to make people, not to stop making people feel bad about their sin, on the contrary, to make it so people continue to dwell on their sins because that's what most people do all the time. And that explains most of their behavior. And then people who know that can exploit that and manipulate them. Whereas people who know they're forgiven are very resilient. And again, the more aspects of the gospel and Christianity that they understand, they're going to be beacons of light to the world, helping others to shake off their shackles and then resist the claims of the left. 
the agenda of the left. Now, let me say as one final thought on this, everything I've said in this episode should not be construed as an endorsement of the right. All right. Now, I need to think more about that topic. So those who know me, you know, you know I'm, I'm a pacifist. So clearly, and I've also just been appalled by how readily, especially evangelical churches in the United States, quote, support the troops, by which they don't merely mean we hope everybody gets home safe tonight without bloodshed. They mean they're supporting U.S. foreign policy, at least in many churches, that's what it means. And so I've been appalled by that. But to me, that seems different from active hostility to Christianity, the way the left is clearly just outright, you know, at war with Christianity in many respects. Okay, so I said the right, maybe the the explanation is they seek to subvert it or co-opt it or something like that, you know. So in any event, I need to study more and and think more about that. And maybe I'll do a follow-up episode about the relationship between the standard right as a, as a framework, as a, as a movement in its relationship to Christianity. Thanks for your attention, folks, and I look forward to your comments. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.